Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark, and with me as always is Charles W. Chuck Bryant. Yes. Uh, and this is Stuff You Should Know, the podcast, the audio cheesecake podcast. So mad at that guy. Oh, really? Yeah, we'll talk about him in a minute. It will all become clear. Okay. I just took my tooth out for, uh, I'm getting a new one tomorrow, finally. Congratulations. Thank God. Are you getting it after we record? Yeah. Cool. So two more episodes will feature Hillbilly Chuck. <laughs> it's been a long, <laughs> arduous road for you. It's it? been like over six or seven months now. <laughs> I just looked back at Christmas photos and I had no tooth. Yep. I didn't realize it was like last year. Yeah. And it's almost August. Yeah. Oi. Hillbilly Chuck. <laughs> All right. That's really derogatory, you realize. No, I, I, I love hillbillies. Oh, okay. <laughs> Chuck. Yes. Uh, I, I have a revelation for you. All right, let's hear it. So, um, you know when you hear music and you look yeah. at art? Yeah. If you don't hate <laughs> art? Yeah. And you look at it? Uh, and you, you start to feel an emotion or maybe a memory is released or, or just something happens to you. A change kind of comes over you. Sure. What you're doing is experiencing an emotion that was, I guess, created and encapsulated mm-hmm. in a work of art, whether it's music or something visual. or Sure. It, it, and it was put in there by the artist for you to come along and unlock. Yeah. And then, bam, you're feeling some sort of emotion or whatever. Yeah. That is possibly the most astounding thing that humanity's ever figured out how to do. Agreed. Like, think about it. It's like when when you're interacting with art, you are, in a way, interacting with the artist, and the art is the intermediary. Yeah. But if you... So you, you kind of understand it on that level. But imagine if you you were an alien, mm-hmm. an emotionless alien that came down okay. and observed this just kind of off to the side. Mm-hmm. It, does, it makes zero sense whatsoever. This painting is just a work on canvas. Yeah, it's color and... Brush strokes and yeah, yeah, but it's it is if you look at it on on a much more important level, it is a capsule of emotion and memory. Agreed, and I agree that that's like astounding when you think about musical notes. Like there's a, a code inside them almost yeah. that taps into these emotions. Yep. And I'm already upset because we don't quite know why, and like. Why it differs from person to person, and it's like I don't think we'll ever know. Yes, you know, some people can hear something and think something sounds like garbage. Someone else might hear it and it might make them weep. Okay, I think we do know. I think I know. <laughs> well, <laughs> you should have written this article. Well, no, think about this. I think that we have um, certain processes. Mm-hmm. I did write this article, Smarty Pants. Well, one of them you did, yeah, sure. Uh, so I do think I think that there's. Um, Certain processes that our brains are capable of carrying out, and mm-hmm. they're emotion-based, right? Yeah. Because think about it. What are emotions, Chuck? Uh, that's, that's one of those hard-to-define things. They're like, what? What is the definition? Well, that's like a. It's 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 some sort of no. Okay. What's the? I, let me rephrase because that was okay. define is Chuck. Yeah. Uh, what what is the value of an emotion? What's the purpose that it serves? 
Well, I mean, some people think it uh, from early on it was a means to help us survive, like right. fear of the tiger, right, or uh, contentment with the sun on our faces, right, or like around a campfire. So, yeah. oh, okay, I need to stay warm. Sure. You don't even have to think that emotion is like your body thinking for itself in order to survive or achieve its goals, right? Yeah. So our brains are capable of carrying out certain processes and using things like art and music mm-hmm. is almost like exercise for those emotional processes. Okay. That makes sense. And when we do this exercise, they kind of bulk up, mm-hmm. but they bulk up differently for different people because we have different experiences. They're all along the same lines Yeah, where you're feeling like things that make you happy or things that make you sad or things that make you scared. Um but they're different subjective experiences. True. That's what I think is going on. I agree, especially when you throw memory in there, which we'll get to. Right. Uh, well, let's go ahead and hit this one study then that um, Germans, the Germans conducted. <laughs> right. Uh, they found uh, the Mapa tribes people in Cameroon who had not heard Western music yeah. before. No, no, not a second of it. And they thought, well, this is perfect. Uh, let's play some Western music and see if they can match uh, this music to, like, an emotion, like happy or sad, and they did. Right, and by Western music, we mean banjo music. (laughs) Yeah, all banjo. (laughs) Um, There was another part to that study I thought was even more interesting, which is they played altered versions of music for them as well with, like, threw it out of rhythm or made dissonant harmonies, and these people that had never heard Western music, like, didn't appreciate that sound very much. Right. It innately triggered, like, when they heard... Bad harmonies or a off rhythm beat. We're like, no, right. So if there's or not, whatever their word for no is, if there's not, yeah, if exactly. there's not something universal going on, then um, th- then they shouldn't have noticed. Yeah, then I'll be a monkey's uncle. Exactly. So that means two things: that that emotion encoded in music is universal, and the ability to distinguish like what's right and what's wrong in music is is universal too. Then. That's what it would suggest. Yeah, to a certain degree, though. But then you hear people that like don't understand when they're singing off key, and I'm like, how can you not hear that? Remember the tone deafness one? Yeah, that was exactly. a good episode. Good overlooked episode. Anyway, I thought I think it's all very interesting. So okay, so we've got this idea that this this is all universal. Sure. Um, there's that still doesn't explain what's going on, and no. there's there's different schools of thought. Like anytime there's just something really big out there that's not explained, yeah. a lot of people have some competing ideas. And one of the people with the competing idea who you're apparently mad at is Steven Pinker, Boo. who's a good guy, good great guy. He he knows how to like he's a linguist, and yet he can rise above the fray of like the sniping that is so characteristic of that field. Yeah. He's got a mullet. Uh, does he really? Yeah. He's got like kind of a curly perm mullet a little bit. He's a good guy. <laughs> okay. You'd like him. Uh, but I don't like what he says about music. Uh, he famously said music is auditory cheesecake. Um, his his contention is basically music is hollow compared to the language that it's based on. Right. Or hearing. Or hearing. And I just I just couldn't disagree more. Well, I think he's also saying there's different ways of interpreting what he was saying. Um, there's, it, it was an accident, an evolutionary accident, um, or it's design. It's something that's designed to exploit a, a, an existing sense. So, like cheesecake exploits sort of our that. sense of taste. It's like we don't really need cheesecake, and but when you're eating it, you're like, this is really good, and it's designed to be like, I'm going to take your sense of taste and I'm going to blow the back of your head out. 
I think people need music and art, though. Okay, well, Pinker would probably contend that's not necessarily the case. That's that's the explanation. Is that yeah, is that it. he's saying if if that's if if music is just designed to assault the sense of hearing, um, it triggers emotions because it's specifically targeted to do that. Yeah, simple as that. All right. So the other guy, or there is another guy, uh, Mark Changzi, mm-hmm. uh, cognitive scientist. He thinks that music uh, we associate it with movement, and we can pick up on. Uh, movement and, and empathy, or we express and pick up on empathy and emotion right. through visual cues of movement yeah. from other people. Like if somebody's kind of trudging along, you're like, oh, that person's sad. Yeah. Yeah. And that makes sense because, um, and this was, I thought, kind of neat. Was this the first article yours? Yeah. When when you Google uh, musical notes and hit it into Google Images, it, like, Almost everything you see, it shows them like flowing and flying, and right. There's movement. Yeah, there's very few like just static shots of musical notes on a scale. Yeah, and even if you looked at a musical scale, you know it has a, a flow and up and down, and it all is very movement based. Right. He also pointed out too that um, we use terms about movement to describe music, like a movement is a part of a smaller of a larger composition. Yeah. Um, or we say like music moves us. Yeah. Um, so I think you did a good job in making the case that we associate movement and music, but I don't think that necessarily proves his point, his larger point that no. that's how it evokes emotion because it's a stand-in for human movement. Yeah, but I definitely thought it was worth note, you know. For sure. It's one of those things that's like, huh, that's kind of interesting, but what are we proving here? Right. Well, there's another camp, too, that, that um, kind of is the opposite of Pinker's assertion that um, they say that, no, music and and art are its own things yeah like it, it looks like this huge blur of of stuff when you put it under an mri but that 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 process is its own thing and it's not just a an offshoot of language or hearing yeah i think i relate to that a little bit i figured you would so all right let's let's put music on the back burner for a second and talk about art visual art <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and I'll go ahead and say up front that a painting or a photograph I can find, like, extremely beautiful, but it doesn't move me emotionally like music or a moving image will. Like a, a you know, a movie or a TV show or sure. whatever. Right. Or, and, and then you put music and that moving image together, and for me, that's like the recipe. That's just when it goes kablam. Right. So, like, when uh, at the beginning of Bonanza, you just start weeping on you. Yeah, exactly. Right. But other people, you know, look at a painting and, like, I'll find a painting gorgeous and beautiful or a photograph, but other people look at a painting and weep, let's say. Sure. But not me. So it all varies from person to person. Right. Um, the thing that, that kind of gets me is that because it varies from person to person, I, I think that explains why we have such a wide swath of what we consider art. Sure. You know? Oh, yeah. Why there's so many genres of music, because something that might get you might not get somebody else. Yeah, like the, you know, the very bare, you know, stark art of, like, the dot in the center of a blank canvas. Yeah. I don't get it. Well, the thing is, that's that's you can't poo-poo it, though. No, I'm not poo-pooing it. Because abstract art basically proves the idea that art is an encapsulation of emotion or emotion encoded for each viewer to unlock. Yeah. And it may do nothing for you, mm-hmm. but it may also 
trigger some sort of memory, like uh, that someone's made. Right. It, it, just the idea that like something beyond like people moving mm-hmm. and talking and saying lines and there being music in the background, uh, unlocking you know your emotions. Sure. The fact that just a dot in the middle of a white canvas can un- unlock emotions, like that's it at its most basic essential form you know yeah but it still does the trick or performance art Ooh. <laughs> yeah <laughs> the one you know uh so one of the theories is that visual art basically simply just taps into these learned emotional cues and whether it's uh a conscious thing or it's subconscious like the color red right or these weird lines that i see or uh a, a pollock maybe you yeah, know, what that might evoke in different people. I chose Franz Klein for some reason, and I don't know why. I, I don't I, know. Pollock if was... would be the go-to, but I like that you went somewhere else. Yeah, well, lines in disarray. It's unnerving. See, one of the biggest things I have with visual art, with like a painting, is when I go see, like a Pollock, I'm more knocked out by being in the presence of the original work. Right. Like it looks cool, and I love it, and it's gorgeous. But I think about Pollock in his garage, sure. drunk as a skunk. <laughs> You know, dribbling the paint everywhere. Yeah. And like, if I could touch it, I would like connect with that. If you touched it, you would get tackled by security. <laughs> or anytime I see the original stuff, I think I, I, talk, I know exactly what you mean. Like when I see the original handwritten lyrics at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame to mm-hmm. like a Jimi Hendrix song mm-hmm. on a piece of notebook paper. Yeah. I'm like, man, his pencil touched that paper. Right. And wrote The Wind Cries Mary. Yeah. Wham. There's, that's definitely an aspect of it as well. I agree. I agree. I don't know how, I wonder how that changes things though, you know, is that, does that add to it or is it distracting? Like does fame and celebrity distract us from our emotions? Oh, that's a good question. Thank you. I think it enhances it for me. Yeah? Yeah, because when I had like this hero worship of an artist and then I meet them or I see their like original work, that's what does it for me. Hmm. But so, it could also be an unknown, you know. Gotcha. Um you know, that's funny, though, because I wanted to say that you would be, you probably wouldn't have been into disco then if you were, like, all about the artist and, you know, seeing that something created by, yeah. you know, the, the individual. I wasn't into disco. Right. <laughs> um, but that also, that I, when I was researching this and reading these articles, it made me wonder, like, is that a difference? Like, there's a difference between experiencing live music oh, yeah. and recorded music. Yeah. So does that... Was that a distinction between people who are into disco and people who weren't an unconscious, oh, maybe so. an unconscious difference? Although I would argue that the basis in this article at least says that the live music thing is about being in the same room with people with similar likes. Partially. Not necessarily because you can listen to a live recording of a song and it is like hearing that crowd cheer is totally uh, sure. different. So maybe it's evoking that, but I'm yeah. not friends with the people that I can't see on this recording, you know? Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. All right, let's get back to it, huh? Uh, yeah, the, um, just real quickly, it's also culturally based because you make a great point that depending on where you're from, like even color can mean something different. Like in Japan, sure. the color white is associated with death. Yeah. So melancholy, uh, will come out whereas black supposedly is in, in the Western world something we yeah. would associate with death. So like a snow covered painting, like a Thomas Kincaid would maybe, uh, instill dread in a Japanese person. That's why he doesn't do very well in Japan. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, but then one other thing, Chuck, where the, the color red, those lines in disarray, all that, those are called cognitive antecedents, right? Right. And you, you can also make the case that uh, a change in harmony or pitch mm-hmm. or drumming or whatever is a cognitive antecedent, too. 
yeah. in, in much the same way that the composer is, is, is changing something, is adding something, is taking something away. And that forms a cognitive antecedent. It's the thing that triggers the emotion. Awesome. So should we talk about the brain? Yeah. Here's where it all comes down to science. Okay. I knew we were going to get to there at some point. Uh, you hear music. And, well, first of all, they say it's kind of impossible to say, like, you know, we can say we have a language center and a center for, like, movement and things like that. But we can't really pinpoint a dead center for music in our brain because it's sort of all over the place. Right. Which is kind of awesome, I think. Uh, but when you first hear a song, let's say, uh, your frontal lobe is going to kick in and the temporal lobe. And it's going to process things like uh, rhythm, pitch, and melody to kind of get the ball rolling. Right. Um, they think it happens in the right hemisphere, but they aren't quite positive that that's the only place it happens. Um, personally, I think it probably hits the left and right. Yeah. It's firing all over the place. Um, but it depends on a lot of things, like you said, whether it's live or recorded, um, probably whether or not you or a professional musician or not. Or have any kind of training. Like you're gonna yeah, if true. you know how to read musical notes, when you hear a musical note, you're probably going to visualize it. Whereas like yeah. if I hear music, like I do not do that. Right. I maybe see colors or um yeah, fractals or something, depending on whether I'm listening to Pink Floyd or not. <laughs> and then whether or not the music has uh lyrics, if it's um if it has lyrics and you can understand these lyrics, then you're gonna be processing language through uh, Broca and Wernicke's areas, which we've talked about before. Love those areas. Two great areas. What was that in? We talked a lot about linguists in the, the two areas. There's so many shows now, man. I have such a hard time. It didn't come out very long ago. I think it was in uh, the one on Prohibition. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it activates a visual cortex because, you know, when you close your eyes and listen to music, you're probably going to visualize something. Well, that would that would lend credence to the idea that music is associated with movement. Yeah, true. Because we track movement with our eyes. I see really high glossy music videos when I close my eyes. Do you really? No. I just see um, Money for Nothing over and over and <laughs> over again. You see the uh, the day glow. Yeah. And the uh, what's the that? purple leopard yeah. <laughs> print. Um, and it can also trigger the the motor cortex, of course, because that that's what. You start tapping the hand, tapping the yeah. feet, bobbing the head. Yep. Like in the disco episode when we played some of that music. Even though I don't like that music, it still gets the head bobbing. Yeah. Well, it's good music. So you say. It and activates I, your motor cortex. That's right. Whether you like it or not. <laughs> and the cerebellum, I think, is the last one. And that's pretty interesting because um, that means you're like following the music and trying to figure out where it's headed based on what you've heard before. Which is cool. Yeah. Because we love to keep our ourselves occupied. Sure. Um, that's not the last one. There's the medial prefrontal cortex. Oh, yeah, you're right. Um, and that word also is usually pronounced prefrontal, not prefrontal. Oh. Um, <laughs> and that one is the one where our, that unlocks our memories. Yeah. Like the music goes in there mm -hmm. as a key and goes, and then all of a sudden you're like, oh, yeah. What's one of your old, old ones? Uh, hot-blooded. What does that give you? It was, it, I, I think of myself as a little three-year-old in cowboy boots, because that was like the first song <laughs> I ever knew the lyrics to, so I walked around singing Hot Blooded. Nice. How about that? That's pretty good. Uh, my big one is um, How Deep Is Your Love by the Bee Gees. Oh, yeah. It makes me almost want to cry when I hear it, because this one day when I was like in the third grade, there was a bully that was not even picking on me, but 
he just scared the crap out of me on the bus one day with his bullying. And I was such a little wimpy kid, you know. And I ran to my dad's office. He was principal and he wasn't there. And I was, she was just like, you can wait for him. And I was like crying. And how deep is your love was on the, mm-hmm. on the, uh, the hi-fi. Mm-hmm. And, uh, to this day, it just still makes me incredibly sad to hear that song. See, you like disco. Well, it makes me cry. Right. It moves you. Or like Centerfold by Jake Isles Band. That always takes me to like the skating rink. Yeah, that was... Immediately. Yeah, good one. Um, so if you want to talk about memory, you should go look up... Um, have you seen the video on YouTube I posted about the, the, the guy in the nursing home? I don't follow you on Facebook. <laughs> Jerk. Uh, it's pretty amazing. Just go to YouTube and put in man in nursing home reacts to music. Yeah. And there was this, this old timer in a nursing home who it showed him before he listened to anything and he, you know... It's kind of shaky, had a hard time stringing together sentences. And then they put these headphones on and played like Cab Calloway and stuff. And all of a sudden his speech is fluid. No way. Oh, dude, it's like remarkable. Wow. And just gut-wrenching to see this. Well, they, they were saying the, the medial prefrontal cortex is one of the last areas to go with Alzheimer's. Exactly. So you may have trouble with just about everything else, but music can still unlock memories. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it's awesome. It's a uh, cognitive antecedent. It is. Uh, and then there was another study with, um, they studied this woman who had damage to her temporal lobe and she couldn't distinguish, uh, between like melodies and things, but she still had the, uh, in the, in the MRI machine had the emotional reactions lighting up that you would anticipate with like, quote, happy music or sad music. Yeah. Pretty amazing. Right. Um, again, it's like the Mafia tribes people. Yeah. So, uh, we have a, a pretty good idea that this, this, that our brains are being activated, these certain regions are, mm-hmm. right? We've seen it in the MRI. That's People right. People have listened to music in MRIs while scientists have studied them. They love that kind of stuff. Um, and so from that, and like that Alzheimer's uh, revelation, mm-hmm. we've started to realize like, oh, okay, well, maybe we can, like artists, um, create music or art to um, to get you in, with the emotions, yeah. Um, maybe we can kind of use this as like a prescription, and hence music therapy has been born, and it's actually been proven as um, what what is the um, noun for efficacy? Efficatic? <laughs> uh, effective? No, wait, that's a an effect. It's effective. Okay, thanks, Chuck. Sure. <laughs> Go ahead, man. Something bad just happened to me. <laughs> uh, okay, well, yeah, so music therapy's been born, and it's effective. It's been shown effective. It it's has. efficative. <laughs> exactly. Like, uh, for instance, well, they think it, it grows as we grow, like this this tie to music and emotion intensifies as we grow, even though they've seen it in little babies, mm-hmm. little oh, smelly yeah. babies. Yeah, it starts early, right? Uh, yeah, but, like, you know, fast tempos in a major key will tend to make someone happy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And it just, you kind of take it for granted, but like there's stuff going on there to make this happen. Oh, for sure. And like minor keys, D minor, the saddest of all keys, slow tempo. Is that the devil's key? No, it's from Spinal Tap. Oh, okay. But it is. It's a very sad key. And minor keys, when you hear it, especially as a musician, you, you know, it just lends itself to like darkness. Yeah. I wonder if that is the devil's key. There's something called like, I think the devil's key. Oh, really? Yeah, I, I can't remember what it is. It's worth, like, maybe we'll do a smarter in 60 seconds on it. 
I would love to. Okay. Um, but as far as uh, studies go with medical benefits, they have found that um, at Cal State University that hospitalized kids were happier during music therapy when they could play something along with like a teacher on guitar, let's say, than even getting like toys and puzzles. Like they they valued and were happier during music time than playtime. Right, they're it's pretty um, remarkable. They're uh, like just playing, doing their own plaything, just stunk compared to playing a triangle. <laughs> yeah, I was always like put in a bad mood when I was given a triangle or a recorder. Do you remember recorder lessons? Oh yeah, mandatory recorder lessons. Sure. Why was that the the one? Uh, Probably because it's easy. Yeah. What did, I guess the recorder lobby was much stronger when we were kids than it is today because you don't see those any longer. Yeah. Well, there was no read on it. Like it's just any kid could pick up a recorder and play. Right. You don't have to hit it just right with like the flute or. And then what were those one sticks? They were like ribbed sticks that you would just like zip along one another. It goes. There was like name. wooden corduroy. Yeah, it was, it's a percussive instrument. I don't know the name of it though. That was boring. <laughs> uh, the augmented fourth, my friend. It's the devil's key. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. We'll have to check that out. Maybe uh, our guest can play it. Oh, yeah. Um, which is coming up soon, by the way. Uh, breakup songs. I was a little bit... I couldn't quite figure out if they've proven that a breakup song... It seemed like all anecdotal. Like, you know, of course, I Will Survive is going to pump you up if you're going to show him. Right. Or, uh, you know, she's always a woman to me will make you weep if you love Billy Joel and your girlfriend loved Billy Joel and you just broke up. Well, it feels good to hear those songs and to cry it out. Because your medial prefrontal cortex is is crying out for. Is that what it is? I guess. Yeah. Because, I mean, like you have a memory formed in relation to a song, right? Yeah. But no, I think the point that Conger is trying to make is that there's not a study out there that showed that breakup songs have this certain effect. No one's done that yet. Yeah. But she did lay out like a pretty good case for how it would work, why people were walking around knowing that like, yeah, this, this works, this has this effect, right? Let's hear it. Well, she's saying like there's this, um, this Rutgers University anthropologist named Helen Fisher who studies the effects of breakups. And basically she is the one who came up with the concept of the breakup as an, going cold turkey on an addiction. Yeah. Like you can compare it to cocaine. And the reason why is because when you're in love with somebody, your limbic system is stimulated. Mm -hmm. And then when that's taken away, all of a sudden, this stimulation that you used to have is not there any longer. Your limbic system gets kind of irritated. What Conger is saying is that it it makes sense that music, which has been shown to stimulate the limbic system, Mm -hmm. probably does some sort of number on it to kind of wean you off that cold turkey person you just... Oh, okay. You just, yeah. Gotcha. That makes more sense now. That's, yeah. But there wasn't an actual study. You're right. Okay. But she also pointed out that music um, has been shown to be a pain reliever. Yeah. This one study in uh, from 2011 found that uh, cancer patients undergoing uh, mastectomies had lower blood pressure and lower anxiety when they played music uh, pre-op during the operation even in post op. Yeah. And um and not not a, an enormous amount. It's not like a shot of morphine or anything like that. It's like right. 0.5 uh a half a point on a 10 point scale. You know the pain scale? 
the yeah. line drawing of the person just like ten. I never know like, what to say there. I always think I need to say a lot so I'll get a better pain pill. <laughs> well, they ask you like one to ten. I know. That's why I always say ten. Oh, okay. But I never, I mean, it's hard to qualify. If you want to like, get the good pain pills, you have to say 11. Oh, really? <laughs> they think that's hilarious. <laughs> have you said that? No. no. This one goes to 11. That's the second Spinal Tap reference. Um, yeah, and that's actual physical pain. It shows to right. ease a little bit. But yeah. where it really comes in handy is as like an anxiety reducer yes. and as an emotional uh, whoopee. Yeah, they found that people who suffer from anxiety, they actually responded to music as a, an analgesic more than a pharmaceutical analgesic. Yeah, that's awesome. It is. And it's not just them. Like you, you mentioned like blood pressure lowering. Other studies have been conducted that showed that uh, pregnant women um, were less stressed out than w- when they oh, listen yeah. to music. Sure. Um, people uh, with cardiac patients, their blood pressure lowered. Um, immune systems were boosted in post-surgery patients. Like there's, it has this really great effect on us. It's pretty, pretty obvious why it's, it's the limbic system. It has a calming effect. I had that happen to me once actually to my detriment. I was, uh, living in New Jersey at the time. I was going to the bank and like really stressed out about getting to the bank before it closed. Mm-hmm. And this song came on about that I'd never heard before. Like halfway there, I get to the bank. It's like, Literally, like a minute and a half before this bank closes, and I could not get out of the car. <laughs> I couldn't quit listening to this song. What song was it? I can't remember now, but I literally I remember watching the dude come up and lock the door in front of me, and sitting there in my car and wow. thinking, you know what, this is worth it because this is amazing, and I'm not stressed anymore. And who cares about the bank? That is that is quite a song. Yeah, and I think it probably bounced some checks because of it, but. Who cares? Did you go back and listen to the song after you're looking no, at your man, overdraft I, fees? I wish I could remember what it was. This is a long time ago. That's it really It may great. have been like a classical thing. Because I broke down at Carnegie Hall and cried one time. Did you? Yeah. You couldn't get in? Beethoven's. No, <laughs> I got in. Uh, Beethoven's ninth, Ode to Joy, with like the full choir. Oh, yeah. That thing Ode pumped in. Ode to Joy, man. <laughs> Ode to Joy. Yeah. Ode to Joy. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. That's right. <laughs> That's the lyrics, <laughs> that right? was like, those are the lyrics. I just activated your Wernicke's area. Mm-hmm. Now you activated another area. <laughs> <laughs> what else you got? Uh, nothing, man. I've had plenty of those. A lot of times it's live music yeah. that gets me because of the shared experience. Sure. Um, but it can happen on just, you know, in a movie or a television show. Yeah. Like I said, you marry the the moving picture and music together for me and it's like it's all over. It's like. Chocolate and peanut butter. That's right. You got any good breakup songs? Any good sad songs that you like? No, but it definitely like I think who doesn't do that? You know, when they go through a breakup, to sit around and listen to like the most morose stuff you can find. Yeah, like put on the Smiths and the Smiths, The Cure. Yeah, uh, one of my all-time favorites was the Secret Machine song called "Alone, Jealous, and Stoned." Oh, really? Oh, my God, it'll kill you. Really? Good song. Um, yeah, strangely, Genesis Ripples is. Really? Yeah, that's huh. a great one to me. Like, but that one is so magnificent because it, depending on my mood, it's either sad or very reflective. Yeah. It's not, it's not ever like happy, like, yeah, I feel like I'm going to go take on the world. It's not that kind of song. Right. But it's not necessarily like sad. Yeah. It's just contemplative in a lot of ways too. And there's a range too, you know, I think with the breakup. Like at first you do want to just keep being bummed out. 
until right. you've gotten it all out of your system, and then that's when you want to put on, uh, you know, Eye of the Tiger. Well, also Molly pointed out she wrote the second article. I think she points out that um, if if we are hitting our um, limbic system with mm-hmm. music, and we are, it's like a drug. We become addicted to it. Yeah. Then there's a really good case for unplugging and not listening to music for a while. I don't know about that. Which kind of points out something that I've known for a very long time. A good listen to Stuff You Should Know is very refreshing. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. We have a special treat here, Chuck. Yeah, we do. Okay, so um, we've been talking about the idea of experiencing music, Mm -hmm. unpacking it and experiencing music and art. Yeah. We should probably talk to somebody who packs that. What a great way to say it. Thank you. Um, we have, you might remember him from the Mountaintop Removal Mining episode, mm-hmm. Mr. Ben Soli is joining us again. That's right. And we're going to get his insights on uh, music and emotion as an artist. And then, uh, as a special treat, just like last time, he's going to play for us. Right. So our second musical guest is the same as our first musical <laughs> right. guest. Right. All right. Uh, so let's get Ben in here. like magic, Ben Sully is in the studio. Wow. That was Ben. Thank you for coming. Oh, it's my pleasure. Say hello. Thanks, Ben. It's good to be here. It's good to be here. So we did things out of order, and Ben actually just played, although through the magic of editing, you will hear that song in, or songs afterward. You okay. Know, do you have to give away all our secrets? <laughs> I know. But I just wanted to say that I was supercharged after doing this podcast on uh, music and emotion to experience that with you in a room. All right. With just a few other people. Well, I can't wait to hear what y'all have been talking about then. Well, that leads me, <laughs> nice segue, by the way, into uh, my first question, which uh, we talked a lot about in the podcast about um, music and emotion and how it depends on whether or not it's live. Like there's a difference emotionally whether or not it's live music or uh, like on a CD. And as an artist, I mean, we got the scientist perspective. As an artist, what has been your experience uh with playing live and with how fans receive it live as opposed to on a CD? Well, you know, there's on recordings, there's kind of the, there's a lot of room for the listener to um, place their own images and their own ideas into the music and everything. And there's certainly room for that in the live show as well, but they're also visually seeing um, what your body is doing when you say these words. And of course, Physical body language is a huge part of of how we manipulate the meanings of things, and uh, I think that has a huge amount of input. Um, but I also think that sometimes it can confuse things. You know, sometimes people can be seeing you and kind of be so overwhelmed with what was happening and how it's happening visually on stage that it doesn't necessarily they don't get to focus on what might impact them as much um, musically. So I think I do think there's two music affects people differently in live and then recorded settings. That's pretty much what I said. Yeah, I think he kind of just confirmed what you said, didn't he? Yeah. Um, we talked about there's a a, um, a theory that one of the ways music moves us is because we it's, it's a stand-in for human movement. So that would make a lot of sense that if you're also seeing movement while you're listening to music, you just have your mind blown. It's a stand-in for movement, huh? That's what, uh, what was his name, Mark Changzy? Something like that. Yeah, that's his theory. That's why our emotions are unlocked 
through music is because we we um, visualize movement and we can feel empathy toward human movement. So the music just reminds us of that movement. Mm-hmm. It's a theory. I yeah. think he's working on it still. I think there's. I think it'd be interesting to see how it gets to that part of the brain and what path it goes through. Whether you know, because music kind of exists through this kind of back door in the brain, maybe the place where speech began and then got its own apartment later on in life. We we talked all about that. You're gonna love this podcast. I can't wait to hear this podcast. I, I've I've got a question. Okay. So one of the things we talked about, Ben, was um how when you're observing art or when you're listening to music, it's like you are unpacking um, what the artist put in there emotionally. Or the artist is using some sort of cues to trigger your own emotions. As an artist on, say, the packing side of this whole equation, mm-hmm. do you ever just go like, this note is going to make everybody just weep on cue, or this one's really going to get them? Like, do you ever, do you think like that? Or is it more when you're creating something that you're you're kind of putting yourself in there and it's up open for interpretation? Mm-hmm. I think there's, there's generally two ways I go about it, and both of them have their own dangers and, and pitfalls. When you think, when you try to think of a musical device that's going, that can and will affect people in a certain way, um, especially if you're talking about anything with words and music, um, there's a danger of kind of watering, watering the emotion down to something that can be, to affect people in a broad way. Um, not something on Broadway, just people being affected <laughs> in kind of a, like a, like for pop music, we'll just use that as an example. You know, a lot of times when you're listening, you hear things uh, and sounds and musical repetition that's used because people feel like it will be a hit or will will affect a lot of people. Right. And, uh, and of course, when I'm writing songs, sometimes I can think that I'm being, that I can be too personal with an idea. Like I can get something that's so personal, I'm packing up that bag and I'm putting, you know, undies in and all this other stuff and like <laughs> too specific and you lose people because they can't relate to that specific item. But if you talk about the gesture that's there and try to find the the essential human expression that's in there, um, then you have a universal idea, even if it springs from a very personal experience. So if I was going to say that another way, I think I would say that um, when you're packing up the bags, you have to be careful not to be too personal. Um, because otherwise you can lose people. People can almost feel like, um, not necessarily grossed out, but like they're, like they're seeing something that they shouldn't see. Right. Or it's too private. Yeah, you're letting them pass that barrier. Yeah, exactly. And, and so what you need to do is figure out how your private things relate to their private things. And so create a personal experience that has some type of universal meaning or expression to it. Gotcha. So when you're packing the bags, you leave out like the metaphorical leather hood with the zipper mouth. Yes, that's a good I leave, idea. I leave that out, and nor nor do I make repetition of things that everybody knows is already there all the time. Right. You know, like if everybody knows that the doors are closing and shutting all the time, you don't use that musical device. Mm-hmm. Which is to say, you don't just like, for instance, in dubstep music, there's a very simple musical pattern that's happening. Basically, there's a big build. Usually for about thirty-two bars, yeah. Where it's just there's no low end or anything. There's just big build, 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 and then there's something called the drop, where the bass drops back in, and it's like it's supposed to be like this 
quake of emotion that happens and everybody's head starts just going up and down. Right. And um, you have to be careful because it's a pretty simple device and there's lots of different variations you can do on that, on that. But if you do it too much or too similar each time, then people are just like, eh, that's not for me. Is that just a crescendo? Basically? No, it's not a crescendo. It's a it's an a, it's an orchestration. It's a arrangement thing. So a crescendo is when things just kind of grow in volume. Okay. And uh, this is much more of arranging sounds so that there's some that are absent and you know they're going to return, but how you bring them back in and create anticipation is is the strength of your composition as a as a dubstep artist, I guess. Good stuff. We actually have an article on that. And it's on my list. Dubstep. Robert Lamb will kill you if we record <laughs> dubstep. Uh, so, Ben, as an artist, do you think, like we talk a lot about the emotional kick, like the drug and, you know, it releases dopamine and it's actual, there's science behind it going on. As an artist, do you find it more difficult to still get that kick? Or, like, you know, when you hear a song, do you think more, I was like, as a musician, like, oh, I hear what this person's doing there. Or is it just still pure emotion going on? Or does it vary? Um, I think as an artist, once you start repetitively doing something, there is a tolerance that builds up, which is kind of a sad thing. Yeah. Um, and people kind of find ways to convey that they're still getting that stuff when they're really not. Does that make sense? Especially yeah. in, a, in a live show, like you'll see a, a rocker contorting themselves in all kinds of weird ways. And then after the show, they act like, just you can tell that they're not completely high off of off of the show at least yeah they're they're just kind of like yeah thanks um as opposed to someone who you've just seen go through a pretty magical musical experience and you and you can tell that everything that they had just kind of came out of them and they're either bouncing around or they're just completely a puddle on the floor you know i remember seeing andrew bird play a show like that once and uh, he just gave everything to it, and you could tell he was having an overwhelming experience on stage. And yeah. went to talk to him afterwards, and he was just—he was basically a puddle. He was a human puddle at the end. He had just kind of given everything, and uh, you know, he talks about that in, in some of his songs as well. That actually was one of my other questions: as an artist on stage, like how do you, night after night, how do you draw that up? And does the emotion of the audience, um, how much do you feed off that? And can you? Uh, you probably just can't whip that up. So, like, how does that all work? Yeah. That's something I probably have to think about how to answer just for a little bit. But Like, I guess the basic question is, like, what's the difference between a good show and a bad show? Yeah. And is well, it sometimes that's not up to me what is good and bad. Because sometimes I'll have what's – sometimes when I'm playing a live show, I'll have what seems to be a fairly kind of mundane night. Like, nothing really special – instrumentally happened i didn't shred really much on anything and i didn't really feel an impact and then people walk up to the show walk up to me after the show and they'll be kind of having this intense emotional reaction to it you know um so there's all kinds of stories and networking going on when you're playing live on stage people are getting to know you they spend two hours getting to know you uh they're taking all kinds of visual cues from you Mm -hmm. and of course you're actually talking to them and telling stories um, they're taking cues from everybody else in the audience. Right. So there's kind of like a tribe build-up mentality. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think part of it is getting everybody to participate socially in the show if you want to get to that in, that energy place where something overwhelming happens to you and the audience. 
Um, and that usually starts with – it's very much like a combustion. Like it, you have to ignite it in some way. And you feel that coming on like – have you been in a show where you feel like not so much is happening and then all of a sudden, all right, now it's going on? Yeah, you can definitely feel it when it turns on. There's a um, uh, a sort of friction in the room, if that's a good word. There's some. There's definitely some type of resistance that you can move with, right? If that makes sense. Like in dance, when you're doing like ballroom dance, if, even though the motion is very fluid, there's a lot of rigidity in it. Like uh-huh. between partners, you have to you have to kind of push against your partner, and they have to be rigid to be able to communicate the movement to them because you're not going to be, okay, spin to the right 180 degrees, now dip down 45. Right. Like you're not going to use language to them. You're, you're touching and pulling, and, and but you want to do it in a fluid, very connected way. And you can you have that same sort of push and pull with the audience where when you push against them, you can hear them hear or feel them kind of get excited. And then when you pull back, you can hear them kind of breathing more. Right. Uh, and when I say pull back, I mean that can be volume, that can be tempo, that can be uh, frequency range that you're including in there. It can be a lot of things. And, of course, as a cello player who did a lot of time sitting in the back of the orchestra, you I got to spend time paying attention to that from an orchestral standpoint where you're on stage with 80 people playing to an audience of however many people. And so that's an even trickier thing because you got to get the 80 people to create the spark mm-hmm. before – the audience can really start combusting, like can really start feeling that energy. And that second chair clarinetist is always just messing it up oh and holding gosh. everybody back. Did you play clarinet? No. I'm just... Okay. Um, but sometimes the audience can walk in and create something that may not have been there otherwise. Yeah. I, I really, I felt that too, um, where maybe you had a really crappy day or maybe you just, you don't have any energy left after doing a bunch of media or traveling on the road and the audience walks in and they're just, they've got an idea and an expectation that is just buzzing around the room. And suddenly you kind of get this encouragement or, uh, feeling that you're going to fill their cups. You're going to, you're going to really have an emotional impact, but there's no one way that I get myself psyched up for it. Right. To generate that spark. There's not like one tool there's no drug that I use. It's just kind of one of those things where I try to, from the very beginning, it's I try to write songs that have that personal experience in, in it for me, that that igniting artistic moment, right. whether whether it's um, you know a love song or whether it's a a song about something stupid that happened between politicians or a, a belief in um, some type of social change or it's or a war song or something like that. It can be any sort of thing. I, when I write it, I try to be really honest and, and genuine about something that really moves me so that whenever I play it over and over and over again, the 300th time I play it, I can still look back into that song. And for me, it's very much like that. When I play a song, uh-huh. I'm, I'm remembering and and kind of reliving a little bit of what happened in that song. Right. But not just what happened in that song. What happened when I played that song for the first time in front of a certain group of people or when I played that song on Stuff You Should Know or whatever. You know, right. like it kind of accretes experiences in it. And so that keeps me getting excited about it. And I think that probably helps ignite things. Um, have you ever made a stranger weep with your music? And if so, how would you feel about that? Now, when you say stranger, you mean like 
An some, audience member? Somebody who just is walking by, has no clue. No, not, no, not necessarily. Just somebody you didn't know. Like somebody who came to see one of your shows and like you looked down and you saw like they were crying and it was obvious it was because your music had brought something out in them. Yeah. What, yeah. what was that like? Besides amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Man, what is it like? So when, I, when I'm playing... When I'm playing a song that has a heavy emotion to me, like I've got this one song called uh, Panning for Gold, and I wrote it about my grandparents who both had dementia. And um, as they slipped further and further into that, it was, it's Alzheimer's, and which was caused the, the situation of dementia, um, they kind of forgot all the good stuff that they'd done in the world. And I used this character, this spiritual character of God, Forgetting all the stuff that he'd created, um, in the song as a as a kind of like a lyrical device mm-hmm. to show that it's our job to re- remind each other of how all the beautiful things that are in the world, and um, that was what the song meant to me, and that's what I first started explaining to people, but I quickly learned that people would weep to that song for right. all of their various reasons. The song ha- was so. Um, Sticky as an artistic idea. The idea of someone old forgetting something that a young person was supposed to reconnect them with. Right. Uh, or maybe it was about protecting or preserving something that the audience would all fill their own minds with ideas and they would just weep. And some of them would be weeping for joy. Some of them would be missing somebody. And it was a real, real mix and I had no control over it. That's the that's the thing. That's how it feels. It feels like ah, I've I've even though you feel like you've impacted somebody in a deep way, you don't feel like you've got any control over how it happens. So I I guess that's kind of what I was asking was do you you don't feel res- do you feel responsible uh, for putting that out there and and the people are crying or like the, you're just playing and they're attaching their thing to it? Yeah. I mean, usually the thing that coordinates with it is I feel like I've had a really genuine expression in the song, you know, from a performance standpoint. I feel like right. it was a really honest performance at that time. I'll feel good about the performance. But I don't really feel like it's something that I did. I feel like if I'm being really honest, it can happen. It's something that I can create a situation for. But I don't feel like it's something that I do. I feel like that's kind of like the communal choice or that person's that person's thing right uh earlier in the show we talked about each other's um we talked about music and memory and how it's tied to memories and very evocative of you know a lot of times songs from like your childhood will get, get really specific with a certain memory and you know one of mine was the bgs and a very specific memory uh josh what was yours hot blooded by foreigner but i think everyone wants to know What's the first thing that comes to your head when you think about a song from your past, from your childhood, that really evokes a very specific memory? Like when you hear it, you're just there. Uh, yeah. Well, at this point, I've got a bunch. Uh, at this point in my career, since I've written a lot of music and experienced a lot of music, I've got a huge pile of them. Um, you know, there's a couple. This this song, Wayfaring Stranger, traditional tune. Uh-huh. Uh, when I play or sing or hear that song, I go immediately back to sitting behind my grandfather's house and um, hearing him play that on fiddle and sing. Um, there's other weird songs like uh, Tutti Frutti, 
is the song that I got over stage fright for. For really? some reason. Yeah. I was in uh, grade school choir, and I had terrible stage fright at the time. It was like fifth grade or whatever. And I was playing cello at the time, but I was singing in the choir, and just I just couldn't get with it. I was like, I shouldn't be up here. I shouldn't be up here. And at some point, I was kind of, doody, fruity, fruity. <laughs> and I looked out, and like there was kids on roller skates and hula hoops and the parents were all laughing and I was up on stage singing and I was like, wait, this is, this is affecting people. This is really fun. This is really affecting people. I can just see myself up there. And I just start shaking. It's like, do it, Rudy. Oh, Rudy. And I just, I went, I go straight back there whenever I hear that song. That's funny. Yeah. Uh, and as a musician, like what has been your, what's been your best moment as, as a fan of music when you've been in the audience and feeling, you know, that spark and that fire in the room. Mm. It wasn't that long ago that I saw um, an artist named Anais Mitchell. Uh-huh. Are you familiar with her at all? I think I know that name. She's really good. She did. Um, she did this kind of contemporary telling of the the story of Eurydice in Orpheus, wow. uh, but she did it as a folk opera with like. Adi DeFranco and Greg Brown and, um, gosh, what's the guy from Bon Iver? Bon Iver. Uh, Justin. Yeah, uh, that dude. Justin so she, Vernon? Yeah, she yeah. put together all those different folks and um, and created this modern contemporary telling of it, and it's so beautiful. But anyhow, I saw her performing live, and she's just got this way about how she – she just loses herself, and, and, and it's, it's like she's trying to shake off these words that she just has to say. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's the that's the most recent time I was in the audience. I mean, she's just she's really breathtaking. Uh, the way she would just flip the words out and try to, yeah, it was almost like she was trying to shake off the emotion, and when she shook it off, it ended up all over you in the audience. That's awesome. It's kind of like Gallagher. <laughs> it's very much like Gallagher. Less- I love hearing that is that you know as a music fan to know that you can still go out there as a musician and you're not jaded or cynical and yeah you can still get lost like that. Oh, get super lost in it. I mean, right now the the most overwhelming sound that I hear, of course, is an orchestra because yeah. I, I spent a lot of years playing in them, and then I also think they're so um, special now because we have so few of them that are playing at super high levels, right? Because so many orchestras have closed down, and um. I think that's a really interesting thing because orchestras ask you to change your social habit, at least for us young folks. Uh-huh. When's the last time you went and saw an orchestra, either of you? Well, mine was actually my one of my best stories uh, from seeing a live. I saw uh, Beethoven's Ninth at Carnegie Hall and uh, yeah. the Ode to Joy thing. Like Literally, I was sitting there crying like a little baby. Yeah, but I it, think that's probably the last one I saw. Is it when the dudes come in and go, Floyd Young. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's Actually, I saw the Decemberist uh, a couple of years ago with uh, the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra, which is pretty great. Yeah, a couple of years ago. Yeah. And I was banned with the orchestra. Yeah. What about the orchestra? It's been a while. And I love it, Josh, too. So. I can't even remember. Yeah. And I think it's because orchestras ask us to change our social habits so much to come see them. You know what I mean? For us young folks, like we don't yeah. see shows in concert halls and pay 60 bucks to do it. Right. And wear a tie. And, and wear a tie and sit in seats. Sure. Don't have drinks, you yeah. know, like, and and so, even though it's one of the most um, incredible sounds that we create as humans, I mean, it's a, it's a really powerful sound when you get a full orchestra there, 
plan, as you as you know from your experience. But we still don't do it because it's so outside of our zone. Yeah. And I wonder, you know, what that means as we become more and more visually based. Like, what does music mean to us? Right. And how does it really affect us? And and how, as musicians, can we uh, still affect people in the same way, regardless of an envi- environment? Right. And that's a that's the biggest challenge facing us right now because most you know most of our music's being consumed at MP3 quality through people's you know phones streaming or watching an MP3 video or, or a YouTube video of something. So you know, as a musician, I'm looking for the best way to affect people uh, and the best way to convey my song or art or whatever you want to call it. And nowadays, it's just it just gets consumed so many different ways. Yeah. You don't you have no idea how people are going to resonate with it if they're going to resonate with it so the best shot that you got at it is writing something that's really genuine to you right as an artist and then performing it in a really passionate genuine way and in some ways that harkens back to how we got all started with this thing which was a bunch of people sitting around playing music right not professional musicians playing to audiences and um and that's i mean that's what people originally were willing to start paying for Yes, that emotion, that kind of those en- those endorphins hitting you, all that stuff, that that emotion, that uh, physical effect on your body. Yeah, I've seen some of the best stuff I've seen has been like in the subways of New York. You know, mm-hmm. I saw a guy do uh, Wild Horses by the Rolling Stones just by himself acoustically, and no one was paying attention. And it was one of the most awesome like versions of that song I've ever heard in my life. Yeah, and no one was paying attention. Except I for you. Yeah, I think a couple of people were, but yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's just it is how do you get this kind of goes back to when we just first started talking is how do you get folks to pay attention and get them to realize that there's there's stuff here to be felt and and had without whatever using musical devices that water everything down. Yeah. Where you're trying to use repetition and loudness and big, crazy sounds to get their attention. And, you know, you make sure not to leave any spaces in the song because, uh, heaven forbid, you lose their attention. Right. Or they not give it to you, uh, you know. So that I think that's one of the challenges for us is, as musicians as we um, march on into this technolo- technology age is not letting the huge pool that we're swimming in from an industry standpoint where we're trying to compete for attention or CD sales, whatever you want to call it um, – affect how we actually make our music. Right. You still need to make something that is genuine to yourself. Otherwise, you're not going to be happy playing it. And then if you're not happy playing it, you have got zero shot at affecting people emotionally. Right. If you don't affect people emotionally, then they're not going to come to your shows. And that's really all that we got these days. If you're going to want to be a professional musician. Ben Soli, doing things right. Uh, uh, when's the album coming out? Uh, the new record, Half Made Man's coming out September 25th. September 25th. Uh, where's the best place to buy it? Um, iTunes is a great place. Um, these days, you can get it pretty much anywhere, but iTunes is a fine place. And you're on tour right now? Yeah, on tour. We're on tour in our sweet tour van, Tammy, as well as on bicycle. All right. This will be coming out probably close to the release date of the CD, so you, are you going to be on tour this fall as well? Yeah, absolutely. I'll be all over the country. Riding your bike to shows at times. At times, we'll be riding our bike. Most times, we'll be in our tour van, and we'll... Uh, be hitting all the towns in this country. BenSoli.com. Anything else? I'm good, Ben. Thanks for coming. You were like the best interview. 
like literally. I, that was that was a little bit cyclical. Uh, you know, I, I had to I had to work my way around some of those answers. Dude, you elevate us, my friend. But the you know good, that's the great thing about this show is that you all let it let it come, not try to design its existence. It's cool. We would fail. I appreciate that, but. Uh, traditional wrap-up? Uh, if you uh, want to get in touch with me and Chuck and Ben Soli, we can pass things along to him. You can tweet to us at SYSK Podcast. You can join us on Facebook.com slash Stuff You Should Know. And you can send us an email to StuffPodcast at Discovery.com. Feeling young today. Flat out and feel it's on the highway Don't tell me to slow down, you see I grew up this way TV shows and highlights, don't forget, play by play Now it's mine Feeling tough today I'm bristled and feeling like a tidal wave been through the city looking for a place to hide away. All I need is someone, but you left yesterday. I guess it's my turn. And if you want something done right, oh, you got to do what you say. Something bad enough You got to do what you say There's a man in a cage He's fighting like a fever for the time away There's people gathered around Making bets on the highest stakes Oh, I can't look, I know there's got to be a day
For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?